0: Hello and welcome to our first episode of Depolarizing America, a podcast discussing the best ways to combat polarization in American society. Each episode, we will deliver the in-depth research discovered by our science and legal teams in science court. I am Matt Simonson, and I am joined by Hannah Ihekrenye and Jess Jurcic. In this episode, we will be discussing the history of efforts to fight polarization both inside and outside the United States. Now, I will send it over to Hannah, where she will interview Andrew Bremner, a member of the legal team researching U.S. government programs in post-World War II.
1: So, Andrew, thanks for being here with us. Thank you. I did some prior research into, like, national mandatory service programs and non-mandatory service programs, and it was actually a lot of interesting stuff. And a lot of what I found was that a lot of mandatory programs they enlist a lot of people into the drafts after war started, like Pearl Harbor happened or the Korean war. And then after that, you know, less people were enlisted and less commitment towards that type of thing happened. But what did you find from your research?
2: Yeah. So most of my research was focused on uh, non-military government organizations, but I definitely like in the research I've done military, like, involvement, I've definitely found the same things, you know, and I looking at numbers and trends, it definitely seems that like, especially since uh, Vietnam, just participation in military has gone down quite a bit. And I think a lot of that probably has to do with, you know, the decreased trust in government, decreased trust in the military and things like that, you know, following the same trends along that the whole country is following. Because I know that is like, if you're looking at trust in government throughout the whole, all of America, it definitely has gone down. And I think, you know, Vietnam, Nixon administration, that kind of period definitely seemed to spark that.
1: So then, what do you think the military service did for a country at that point in time? That's a
2: good question. So I think that it kind of served as a representation of the effects of, like a corrupt government on everyday Americans, especially with so many people being brought in through the draft to this life or death situation. I know I found one study recently that especially with veterans and people who did serve, it decreased their trust and really made everything like very serious and apparent to the whole population.
1: So you're saying, and you kind of hinted at this in the beginning, that we are moving towards a less service, military service, and more non-military, potentially mandatory service, like volunteer programs.
2: Yes, because I would say that the, it seems like the data is showing that while participation in the military and faith in the military is going down the same, isn't necessarily true for volunteer government organizations. Like, for example, one thing I found that was actually surprising to me When I was researching the Peace Corps, when I think of the Peace Corps, I think Kennedy, that era, 60s, 70s, and I think like all all those trips abroad. That's what, that's my image of the Peace Corps. Until I was researching and I found out the Peace Corps actually reached its peak in participation in 2011. So one thing I did find that was surprising to me was an estimate about how effective and how positive impacts of the Peace Corps were, and I forget the exact number. It was something that was showing that the Peace Corps on professionals evaluating the impacts of Peace Corps showed that in a lot of the scenarios, they had the opinion that in a significant amount of situations that the Peace Corps was sent to aid, they didn't end up really helping the host country, specifically for Peace Corps. Which was surprising to me i think it was about 50 percent. so i think that that is a huge i think that's a huge problem that definitely would need to be addressed
1: are there um, major differences have you seen between states conservation cores or is it just about like the same
2: i haven't seen a lot of differences one thing that i have noticed is that all of them tend to be focused on state parks national park wildlife conservation like in those states which you have mentioned and we have mentioned possibility of what mandatory service program could do for climate change and so i think personally that there's a huge opportunity there to get more into things that would potentially like reduce america's carbon footprint promote sustainable energy rather than just wildlife conservation or like national park conservation I think there's a bigger, way bigger infrastructure than I knew there was in order to work off of. It. And I think that there's a big opportunity to jump into new types of environmental service.
1: I know you hinted at this a bit, which really started like in the 1960s, you know, when Kennedy established the Peace Corps and then we have VISTA coming afterwards and then the next d- decades we have like City Year and all these other programs coming. So would you then say by like the 1960s, 70s, we really moved into building that infrastructure for these programs?
2: I wouldn't necessarily say that this idea of government service started in the 60s with Kennedy, especially when you're looking at how expansive something Mm -hmm. like the Civilian Conservation Corps was in the 30s. But I think an important distinction was how many people got involved in that time period just on the value of volunteerism because it really took the depression because the civilian conservation corps was like a child of the depression and that is the reason it was so successful but the peace corps it's a completely different thing you know how popular it was how popular it is you can't attribute it to any economic crisis. You can't contribute it to people joining for this specific reason. I think that that kind of marked the idea of national service for the sake of national service, especially from a non-military perspective. I think, you know, if you're looking at, you know, obviously pre-World War I, World War II, the amount of people that joined the military, you know, for the sake of like serving your country, extremely high. And I think that that attitude has gone away. But I think there's an opportunity to still, like, capitalize and give people an opportunity to do so through a different lens.
1: I'm going to take us back up because you just brought something to my mind. But given, as you said, a lot of these, we have so many of these programs. Do you think when these programs were developed, there was, like, a mission or objective behind them? Or do you think it took to the form of being another, like, Pride thing for Americans, kind of how like the military was in the past. I think
2: looking at the model we have now in the US, which is I keep bringing up AmeriCorps, but again, most it's a prime of example. Our, yeah, it's a prime example. And I'd say that most things we have in the US now were developed with a mission because if you're looking at the model now, it seems that so many things were created and then kind of joined together, right? And so it seems like, oh, the Teach for America program wasn't made as, you know, a symbol of national pride. I think it was a group of people that had this idea of something that they could do to make the country a better place. And the Conservation Corps, I I think a group of people that were very, you know, passionate about the environment. And I think it shows that like each one was created with, like a goal in mind rather than than just created for the sake of existing i think with the peace Corps, maybe there's a bit more to be looked at there just with the the kind of message and the rhetoric behind um you know kennedy's like creation of it you know ask not what your country can do you right. stuff like that but given how small these programs are and especially because of how much these programs are done at the state level. I think, personally, it gives me hope that these are people who are passionate and just looking to do something for their, for their country, for their community. And I think that if it serves as a source of national pride, I think that's fantastic. But I think most programs in the U.S. today were not created
1: with that intent. Do you think these programs are being used to address controversial issues? I would say that in terms of things like Teach for America and
2: building like low-income housing and things like that, they are attempting to address problems that have controversial proposed solutions. I wouldn't say that they're necessarily tackling any controversial issues at the moment.
1: Kind of like they're being used to talk about racial inequities, like within systems, like in education or like housing or like.
2: Yes. And I think that those those issues are definitely controversial when they talk about in government. But I don't think that there's necessarily anything controversial that they're doing in terms of going into minority areas and attempting to help or and attempting to address these issues. I don't think that necessarily anything controversial is going on there, though. When looking at the larger issue and what we as a country should do about it, there's definitely, I would say, a lot of controversy
1: there. All right. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for sitting with us and talking with us about post-World War II U.S. service programs. Thank of you course,
2: so much. Of course.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Enjoying the show so far? We'll be recruiting a jury soon where you can help to decide this case at trial on April 24th. Be on the lookout for how to apply. Now, back to the show. Take it away, Jess.
3: Well,
4: do you want to start off by introducing yourself to our listeners, explaining your position in science
3: court? Sure. My name is Nishan Satpati. I am part of the legal team and currently have not picked a side, but I am currently exploring mandatory service programs around the world outside the United States of America.
4: Awesome. Thank you. We can just get started there with the research you're doing on mandatory service programs around the world. Do you have a few examples that you want to walk us through?
3: my research primarily was i tried to focus my research on mandatory programs which service programs which were non military in nature because there are there were approximately 75 known nations which have mandatory military conscription and there are many common examples which we already know like singapore south korea colombia morocco and these are certain nations distributed around the world which take part in military conscription. But the number of countries which does mandatory service is uh, pretty low actually. A couple of examples which I found, instances of mandatory service were France being one, uh, Malaysia, Nigeria, and Germany. I put an asterisk next to Germany because Germany has not implemented it yet, but it's still in discussion about how they can bring it back because mandatory service in Germany was abolished in 2011. A common trend between these four countries is that they try to focus on the youth of the country and how they could bring about the betterment of the nation. And that's why I say betterment of the nation, because a key word which was shared across the four programs was nation building. And that was one of the objectives of these mandatory programs. France is one which we are, uh, which I'm sure you know. In 2019, Macron tried to introduce uh, a program which would involve 16-year-olds taking part in a two-phased, mandatory program where they would take part in vocational training, try to get a glimpse of military life, was the words which Emmanuel Macron used to describe the program. And then for like a month of trying to, you you get placed in a different part of France and, and then you like take part in, in, in activities which are surrounding the government, charity, and so on. Secondly, it is also in Nigeria where that after the Civil War in 1973, they had instituted a, a National Youth a Service Corps program where university graduates would have to take part in the year-long program in, in trying to bring about unity between the youth. And the fourth country being Malaysia. Malaysia had a, had a program which was the National Service Training Program, which was like focused on 18-year-olds, but that was actually abolished in 2015, and the current government decided to go ahead and abolish it. But for un- more research, they are trying to find a new way of implementing it again. So each of these programs have a similar trend of trying to focus on vocational training, more civic responsibility. So I think that was a common theme I observed in my research of these four countries where mandatory services, but it is something which I am um, still in the process of research trying to find more nations. I-, I heard about how Rwanda in Africa also has a form of, it's not exactly a mandatory service, more of a weekly Sunday where communities get together with each other. And that doesn't sound like a mandatory service. Sounds like you're on a typical Saturday if you're in a nice community, but it is a divided nation and there's a diverse ethnic groups in the country. And this is how they are trying to combat that form of division.
4: Okay. That's really interesting. Across those four examples, what have you noticed from your research that's gone well?
3: What has gone well is, especially in France, it is a fact that you are trying to bring children, which are 16 years old, trying to bring them together, move like move them away from their own hometowns where they are very comfortable and they're trying to teach them life skills, which become very valuable in the, the long run when they are trying to go ahead for higher education or acquire jobs and, uh, and other employment prospects. So what they did was they try to focus on the fact, they try to focus on the young because we'll be the future leaders of our countries. So trying to focus on nation building, trying to bring about a theme of patriotism is something which, which uh, is uh, is focused on. And the thing I noticed about the program in Nigeria was, was an interesting opinion by a student uh, where it said that when the Nigerian National Anthem was played and everyone was standing in attention and under the flag people who were like passing by also were like stopped their cars and actually stood up to the national anthem so that form of patriotism is what they were trying to inspire and it seemed to work it's not very tangible but it is something which is a start
4: yeah absolutely is there anything that stands out to you that hasn't gone well or goals that these programs haven't been able to
3: achieve yeah i guess the cost it is for example uh, i i have a figure over here for nigeria in um for the program for the NYSC, 70 billion naira are allocated to this program i'm not sure what the conversion rate in naira which is their currency to the us dollar is but the number itself uh, says it all and similarly in france the reason why like only around 60 percent of the french population are really happy about implementing this program and one of the main criticisms is the fact that this cost. Might come up to 1.6 billion euros so the question which arises is that is it really worth investing this amount of money when there could be ways to invest that money into educational schemes like improving the curriculum or bettering the educational infrastructure which public schools have so the main criticism the failures are that it's very expensive and there has been no valid economic parameter saying that okay we did invest billions of dollars or euros And there has been a return investment in terms of employment or addition to the workforce that has not been seen in these four countries. Secondly, I think in more developing nations like Nigeria and Malaysia, unsanitary conditions of living places for the children, for the youth who are taking part in this program was a big concern that sometimes the dorms or the places where they were staying was so unsanitary, it became detrimental for them. And sometimes they couldn't guarantee the safety of these core members. Like in Nigeria, when they were violent, like when ethnic groups were more violent and did not respond very well to interactions with these core members, they turned violent. And there were, unfortunately, cases of death among the members of this core. So these were some of the issues, and Malaysia abolished that program for these very criticisms and Nigeria also there is a there is a clamor for either removing it or for refurbishing the program or revamping it to be more accommodating so it's mainly stems due to economic reasons that there is a lot of failure and that's why schemes in Germany have not been implemented yet and in France it is still voluntary and Macron says by 2026 it would be mandatory we are not sure whether it would go forward or not.
4: Yeah, I can really see that resonating here in the United States, the financial concern. I'm thinking right now about the conversations around pandemic relief in the House and the Senate and how that's going. So, yeah, I can certainly see how the economic cost would be something people would point out. Just because our case is focused on reducing polarization in the United States through potentially mandatory service, do you have any sense of what polarization was like in these countries Prior to these programs, I know you mentioned a civil war in one case, which is a pretty extreme example of polarization. Yeah. But do you have a gauge of
3: that for the other countries? Yeah, I guess again, it was not as extreme as it was in Nigeria because the program was a direct outcome of the civil war. We can like we have a legitimate parameter for whether it was successful in a way, and it was. Like people did notice that since you were interacting with core members from different parts of nigeria that stereotypes surrounding the ethnic groups also were reduced so that aided that that reduction in polarization as a as a rebuilding axis exercise in france as well there is a growing divide between religious groups in france uh, which is why the president wanted to bring about something to engage the youth to teach them vocational skills and teach them how to Ah, uh, the life of a military person, because a military person has a lot of discipline and a lot of patriotism for the country to risk their lives. So, like trying to inculcate the youth in that might be another reason. In Malaysia, there was always in in the goals which they had for their program. One was the physical modules. They so they taught and they like engaged the adult, but they engaged in physical training like rope climbing. They were taught how to operate a rifle, but um, that's that's a different concern. But I guess that's the nature of the fact that since if there was a need for a military uh, conscription, these youth were already aware of how to operate basic military equipment.
4: Is there a way to have a mandatory service program that's removed from the idea of nationalism, or are they kind of inseparable?
3: Yeah, I think they could be separated because uh, In those countries where they tried to bring about patriotism, it was because of the direct outcome of clash, like a a legitimate war. Like in France, they are not trying to force people to say, oh, I I love France. They're trying to to teach the 16-year-olds to gain skills which will be useful for them. Uh, But the opposition obviously will try to interpret it as uh, forced nationalism because they're trying to teach the life of a military person. So I feel in the United States, if the way the service could be implemented was more focused on the social developed across countries, especially in parts of the country which are less understood and they're more incensed towards more rich neighborhoods. And that is something which could be focused on to reduce that so-called nationalism initiative. So I think they could definitely be separated, but social media today, it's always can be twisted back to it. So that's something which is difficult to say what would be the ideal solution to that. But I believe they can be separated if the objectives are very clearly outlined.
4: Okay, that makes sense. Thank you for that, that overview. That's really helpful. So if we narrow things back down to focus on science court, how are you envisioning the research you've done and the information you've collected being applied
3: as the legal team moves forward with the case? I think it it would help both the pro and con strategy, the research which I'm doing, because since there are already examples of service which are non-military in nature around the world, and the United States could take points from that and also like lessons that don't do this, I think it would help both the pro and the con team. I haven't decided my own stance yet, but I believe like believe definitely the con stance would be the cost, and that's a very common problem which is there across the world, which is it's very expensive. But a pro could be is that the youth are being engaged, stereotypes are being reduced, they are reaching out to people from different ethnic groups, the ethnic groups are themselves reducing their own stereotypes, and like in Israel for that matter, there are direct employment benefits out of mandatory service even for that matter gender wise there are many nations which make it compulsory for men to do mandatory service but are optional for women to do it so that is something which also can be explored like how exactly does gender play a role in assigning mandatory service like i appreciate how in france they don't have it that way it's 16 year old all from all types of genders you can you have to take part in it to come in 2026 but you can like there were 40,000 volunteers which is quite a size portion out of which 20,000 were selected. And interestingly, there were 50 students who were specially abled. So that is something which was remarkable that students were actually stepping up. So these statistics could definitely benefit the pro team to see that, you know, the youth will step up. But the con team also has a lot of material to get from the world that it's expensive. Corruption is a big problem, especially when you're dealing with 1.6 billion euros and like 70 billion naira. That's a lot of money. And that could lead to corruption and more mismanagement. So there's a lot of meat for the pro and con team to attack so i think it could benefit both sides
4: absolutely fodder fodder for both sides for sure yeah yeah well it sounds like the u.s has a lot of examples around the world to learn from well i'm really excited to see how this shapes the case moving forward and really grateful for your time and all of the research you've done on this topic this was fascinating
3: thank you so much jessica thank you for your time it was uh, it was good to talk to you about this Thanks for
0: joining us this week on Depolarizing America. Make sure to visit our website, scicourt.umn.edu, to stay updated on the latest research. Catch up with our weekly blog posts, and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at SciCourt. We hope to see you next time as we further discuss how to depolarize the United States.